scripture uh, reading this morning is taken from Galatians 2, verses 17 to 21. Uh, I'll give you just uh, a minute to find that either on your phone like I'm doing. Uh, it's on uh, page 824 in your pew, Red Pew Bible. Um, we've been talking about grace uh, for some time, and uh, this passage um, highlights something that Paul talked about a number of times um, in his writings, um, the struggle uh, between grace and the fact that we're still human, and uh, the, uh, the amazing realization uh, of what grace means, but also the, the struggle in terms of uh, our ongoing sinfulness. So I'm going to read from Galatians 2, 17 to 21, and see what Paul has to say about this. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Doug. In our connection time in a few moments, you can wish Doug a happy birthday may or may not have been a milestone one with a zero on the end. Happy birthday. Yeah. Have you ever shown up to an event and realized that you didn't get the memo regarding the dress code? Where you, you show up and you realize that you are severely underdressed. You know, those feelings of like wanting to hide in the corner. I remember one time I went to an outdoor wedding and uh, made the assumption that since it was a hot day, since it was outdoors, a t-shirt and shorts would suffice and be appropriate and showed up and everyone's, you know, in suits and ties and um, you just feel like you want to run and hide because you are dressed inadequately. The... uh, Apostle Paul, in the uh, letter to the Galatians that we're studying, um, is talking to us in these chapters about the dress code of uh, what does it take in order and how should you be dressed and what should you be dressed in in order for God to you know, fling open the doors of his heart and welcome you in. What do you need to be wearing what dress code? What's the dress code if that you want to be welcomed into a relationship with God? And the scriptures are clear that if we want to be welcomed into a relationship with God, we need to be clothed in perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Righteousness is a relational word. It means to be in right relationship with. It means to have uh, met the standards of that relationship. And so if you, uh, maybe you can picture your uh, relationship with the hydro company. If you pay your bill, 
on time, then you are uh, in a right standing with that hydro company and you'll get your, uh, your power will be on. At least it should be. But if you, if you don't pay your bill, if you default on that payment, uh, it, you, you're out of righteousness. You're out of relationship. Your, your relationship is not in good standing. And so your power could be turned off. And God says what we need to, for him to welcome us into relationship, what is needed for the, the doors of his heart to be flung wide open and us to be welcomed in is perfect righteousness. The, the problem is, is that uh, none of us have that. We need to be dressed not in our best, but in God's best. Isaiah, the prophet, says that even our most righteous deeds, even our best deeds, are like polluted garments, filthy rags, which um, is actually a really graphic picture. But the beauty is that God always provides what he demands. He provides what he demands. And Isaiah goes on in, in the 61st chapter uh, in verse 10, he says, uh, it should be on the screen here, um, in Isaiah 61, it says, Steve, hey, want to get that next slide? I didn't memorize this one. <laughs> he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That God, while he demands that we be dressed in perfect righteousness, provides that righteousness for us. That we don't have to work it up ourselves. We don't have to provide our best. He provides his best. And so Galatians, the the message of Galatians so far that we've been seeing is that we're welcomed into relationship with God, not because of what we have done for God, but what God has done for us. That God flings open the doors of his heart and welcomes us into relationship, not because of what we have done for him, but only and fully because of what he has done for us. Second Corinthians says that God made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we can say it this way, that, that Jesus' death counts for our condemnation. That Jesus' death counts for my condemnation. And Jesus' perfect, righteous life counts for my commendation. Jesus' death counts for my condemnation. And Jesus' life counts for my commendation. That the only commendable one, the one who is truly commendable, was condemned. So that I, who deserve to be condemned, can ultimately have the commendation of God. Can have his good word spoken over us. You are my son, with whom I am well pleased. We call that justification. We've been, we talked about that last week. Justification. That God views us as just as if we'd never sinned. And just as if we'd always obeyed. To justify, that's a great word, and it actually means the way in which we use that in our, in our language, right? Sometimes we think, oh, I need to justify my actions. It's I need to provide the reason for my actions so that you will view me differently. It doesn't change my actions, but it will view, change your view of me. Um, I read a, an example um, of, a, of a, a student at, in a high school who... Um, who, uh, who slugged another person, who, who 
kind of came across with a right hand and knocked him down. And in, in view of uh, teachers, in view of actually the principal, and they came and said, young man, come with me. You're, you'll be suspended. And he says, well, can, just before we do that, can you check his pocket? And in the pocket is a gun, and his hand's on the gun. It's like, it doesn't change, his actions aren't changed. He still slugged him, he still punched him, still knocked him out, but his actions are now justified. His, his, the view that we would have towards him is now changed. We change, doesn't change the actual condition, but just the view of it is changed. And it's the same way with our justification with God, that, that um, while we are, you know, doesn't actually change, uh, our justification doesn't actually change our condition of whether or not we're actually righteous in the way in which we live, or it doesn't change uh, necessarily right away the, um, the condition of our, of our life, but it changes God's view of us so that he views us as justified. He views us as um, acquitted. He views us as holy. He views us as pure. He views us as righteous. He views us as being in right relationship with him. And we call that justification. And our, then our justification theologically uh, leads to then our sanctification, which is that process of becoming holy. That process after justification of becoming what we already are. So God makes us holy. He declares us holy. And then he makes us holy. He declares us righteous. And then we become, through this process of sanctification that's ongoing, we become actually righteous. He, go, he changes our hearts. He changes our actions. He changes uh, our motivations. And so... Um, the gospel, though, is that your obedience to God doesn't commend you to him. That your obedience does not enhance your standing with God. And at the same time, your disobedience does not diminish your standing with God. That your uh, obedience to God's law, to God's standard, your obedience does not enhance whether or not you're accepted by God. And at the same time, your disobedience does not diminish whether or not you're accepted by God. Your obedience has nothing to do with whether or not you're accepted with, by God, whether or not you're welcomed into relationship with him, whether or not you are seen as righteous by him. And you may say, well, that's really strong. That's almost, that's scandalous. That's, is it, that's, that's, uh, that's radical. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's the gospel. The gospel's that Radical. The good news is that crazy that your obedience doesn't enhance your standing with God and your disobedience doesn't diminish your standing with God. Your obedience and disobedience have nothing to do with whether or not you're welcomed in relationship with God because the truth is, if it did, none of us would be in relationship with God. But God provides that which he demands. Our standing with God our acceptance by God depends only on the obedience of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, a common objection in the scriptures and today, and what you might even find welling up in your heart as you hear this, this good news of, uh, of radical grace, that it's all of grace. One of the objections that, that might rise up in you is, well, why would I obey then? Why would we obey? Why should I obey? If I'm saved by grace, and grace alone 
is there any motivation that we would have to obedience to what God says? Another way of putting it is, does this law-free salvation lead to a law-free life? Does law-free salvation lead to law-free living? If we really believe this, if we really, really proclaim this gospel that your standing does not depend at all upon your obedience or disobedience, won't we become a bunch of crazy, sinning people? The language of Romans chapter 6 is, shouldn't we sin so that grace can abound? Paul's writing in, in, Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he's saying, you know, where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the obje- he raises the objection, he gets ahead of the objection, and he says, uh, well then, should we keep on sinning so that grace will abound? You know, God's glorified by his grace that covers over our sin, that, that forgives our sin, that washes us clean. He's glorified by that. So wouldn't God get more glory if we sin more? So shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that God would get more glory? And, and he says, certainly not. God forbid. And Paul here is saying the same thing. He's saying, no, certainly not. Certainly not. That's what, that's what, uh, that's what he's saying here in verse 17. He says, if we, we seek to be justified in Christ. So if as we're living justified in Christ... It becomes evidence that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? He's saying, should I keep on sinning so that grace could abound? Should I keep on sinning because it doesn't really matter? My standing with God doesn't depend on whether or not I obey or not, whether I sin or not. And so shouldn't I just keep on sinning? And Paul says, no, certainly not. It's a strong language. It literally says, perish the thought. It's, it's um, language today that we'd say, to hell with that kind of thinking. Literally, he says, to hell with that kind of thinking. Perish the thought. Be condemned. That, that kind of thinking is condemnable. He goes on, verse 18, he says, If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What he's saying there is, he says, I actually can't truly live a life to God if I'm living under the law. That I won't truly honor God if I'm living a life under the law. I won't truly love God if I'm living my life under the law. I won't truly respond to God in relationship with him if my life is under the law. If it depends, if my standing with God depends on my law keeping, on my obedience, then I actually can't live a life pleasing to God. Now this objection that, you know, why should we obey? obey? And should, if this, this kind of life, this kind of proclamation of the gospel, sorry, will lead to a kind of life of, well, it doesn't matter if you obey God or not. It doesn't matter if you sin. Let's sin all the more so that grace can abound. That objection, I think, has two premises that are kind of embedded in it, that are smuggled in. The, the, first, um, the first premise smuggled in, embedded in that, is that we all want to be good people. We want to be good people. We want our, our life to reflect the goodness of God. We want, I want my life to reflect the kindness of God. I want my life, and you want your life, to reflect the tenderness and the gentleness, the goodness of God, the kindness, compassion of God, the peace of God, the patience of God. We want our life to reflect that. We want people to think well of us. And we, we know that we want our lives to uh, reflect that because when we see it in other people, we applaud it. 
And we grieve when it's not extended towards us, when the life that we're experiencing isn't reflective of the virtues of God, isn't reflective of the kindness and the goodness of God, that we grieve that. So we applaud it when we see it. We're grieved when we don't. So we all want we want to be good people deep down. We're all actually out seeking righteousness. We know that we're not quite right. We know we don't quite measure up. And so we're seeking rightness. We're seeking to, to prove that we matter. We, we seek to prove that, um, that we have it together in all kinds of different ways. We're all on this quest for righteousness. We're all on the quest for goodness. The second objection, though, and that's that's uh, first objection is 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 good. It's probably true. It's true. The second objection, though, is that or second premise that's smuggled in is that the law will make you good. That it's the law that will make you good. We want to be good, and so what we need is we need a standard. We need a list. We need commands in order to be good. That we actually kind of need a threat hanging over our head in order for us to live this virtuous life that we desire. So we desire to live a life that reflects the goodness of God. And what this objection of, well, if, if we're saying that we are not living under the law, and the law and my obedience isn't going to make me commendable in, in relationship with God, why would, I sit, why would I obey? Why would I live a good life? They're saying, well, it's the law, it's the standard, it's the rules that are actually what are going to make us good. And what Paul's saying is that the law can't save you and the law can't change you either. The law doesn't bring you to God and the law doesn't make you like God. The, the law, the rules, you know, even if we can muster up the discipline to, you know, like beat our head against a wall to, to, to make some changes in our lives, to maybe we're struggling with anger or anxiousness or bitterness, and we say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be a bitter person. I'm not going to be an angry person. And so you just, because uh, that's wrong, that's not, that's not who I want to be, that's not what I want to be like. And so you muster up the discipline. And even if you can make some, some changes in those regards and, and become more like God in the, in the way that, uh, that you express your life, you're probably going to become self, or you will become self-righteous and proud. Even if it, you can muster up the strength to make some external changes to your life, all that's going to do is um, lead to even more self-righteousness and pride. And so um, Paul is saying that the, the law doesn't have the power to actually change you. The law doesn't have the power to make you uh, more like God, more, make you more virtuous, make you more kind, make you more good. What we actually desire. We desire to be good, but the law isn't the way in which that can come about. The law is like a referee that's just blowing whistles on all your fouls. Right? It's the ref, referee just blowing the whistle every time you travel, every time you step out of bounds, every time you commit a foul. The law is blowing the whistle saying, you've, you've done it again. You've, you've crossed the line again. You've broken the rules again. That's all the law can do. Have you ever had a close friendship that operated that way? Right? With someone who's perfect and love to remind you how you're not? Right? You're, you, if, you've, if you're in a, a relationship with someone who thinks they're pretty great and loves to remind you how you're not as good as them, like that's not a, you're not going to have a close friendship with that person. 
right? It's, they're, they're not an enjoyable person to be around. But Paul's saying that's what the law is like. And, and he's saying, in fact, I need to be set free from that paradigm of living. I need to be set free from that paradigm of relating to God. He says, I actually need to die to that way of living. It's the same language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 7. I'll be on the screen here. Romans chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 1. He says, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And he gives an example. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's set free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. It says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. That's Jesus. In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, in our bodies, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, to the law. We have died to the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code in the law. So Paul's saying here, he's giving this image of of marriage, that we are born under God's law, and God's law is like a husband to us. It's like a husband to us. I read a book once that, that said, asked, I, and I forget which, which uh, book it was even, but I remember this image of um, comparing, well, what kind of a husband is Mr. Law? What kind of a husband are you married to? Mr. Law is like your husband and is binding on you. Well, what kind of a husband is Mr. Law? Well, he's never wrong and never satisfied. Some of you ladies are like, okay, yeah. I'm tracking with you. <laughs> kind of a husband is Mr. Law. He's never wrong. He's never satisfied with your performance. Always tells you what to do, but never helps you do it. Some of you ladies are taking notes, yeah. Always tells you what to do, never helps you do it. Always accusing, always condemning. And the, the, the sad reality is that you're bound in marriage to Mr. Law till death do us part And he is never going to die. God's law is perfect. God's law is right. God's law is good. God's law is true. It's not going anywhere. You're bound to Mr. Law until you die. But the beautiful news is is that Paul says that when you come to faith in Jesus, you died to the law. You have a new life. You're bound to another You're bound to Jesus so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. You are now bound. You are now united to another. You are now one with another. You're now married to another, to Jesus. And so he's saying it's not the law that brings me to God. It's not the law that makes me like God. It's Jesus. Jesus sets us free from that deadbeat husband, Mr. Law. 
And, and the reality is, is that belonging to Jesus does not lead to a sinful life, but rather leads to a changed life because we're bound to Jesus, because we're united to Christ. We're now, we're now united to him. And so Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, um, I am crucified with Christ and the life I now live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. And I, it's no longer I who am living. It's Christ who's living in me. That I am in Christ and Christ is in me. It's talking about this beautiful doctrine, this beautiful teaching of the New Testament that we call union with Christ. The being united with Jesus. That our position is now that we are in Christ. And so the, the beautiful news of the gospel, the beautiful news of the new paradigm, not the paradigm of law, but the paradigm of grace, is that in Christ you are justified. In Christ you are forgiven. In Christ you are adopted into God's family. In, God, in Christ you have received the Holy Spirit. In Christ you will never be separated from the love of God. That in Christ you have an inheritance of eternal life that will never perish, spoil, or fade. That in Christ you are a new creation. That everything has changed. That the old has passed away. Everything is made new. That all of the strength of Jesus, all of the blessings of Jesus, all of the power of Jesus now flow into your life. Paul says that's the end of my old identity. And it's the beginning of a new life. That I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Now listen, Paul is fully alive when he writes this. The sentence doesn't end there, right? We think if he's crucified with Christ, that's the end. No, he's fully alive. But he, what he's saying is the old me is gone. The former I has passed away. The guilty, condemned, and insecure one, the one who was enslaved by my own desires, this one who was so selfish, living for my own reputation, my own image, the one living for my own pleasures, the one who thought that he was at the center of the universe and everyone was supposed to revolve around him, that me is dead. I knew I was broken. I kept trying to fix myself. I kept trying to prove myself, whether through a new career or a new romantic partner or uh, looking down on other people who don't measure up to me. I was trying to find righteousness in, through the law. I was trying to measure up. I was trying to prove that I was somebody. And that me has died. That means dead. I've been crucified with Christ. And I'm united to Christ. So the life I live, I no longer live for me. It's Christ who's living in me. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you'll never be comfortable living like you're not one. You're bound to him. You're married to him. You're united to him. It's not who you are. He says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have a new identity. I'm fully known and fully loved. I am fully embraced. I am a child of God. The Holy Spirit is in me. Christ is in me by the Holy Spirit, and he's changing me. He's changing my desires and my will. My, he's energizing my obedience. He's, Paul writes in Philippians 2.13, he says, It's God who's working in you both to do and to will of his good pleasure. That Christ, if you're united to him, he lives in you by his Holy Spirit, and he's working in you to change your desires, to change your will, to change what you want. And so will this way of living lead to a life of debauchery, lead to a life of crazy sinning? No, it's the life of Jesus is inside you and flowing through you. His life is powerfully pushing itself out through you. 
and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Paul writes in Galatians 5, he says, that's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of Jesus is alive in you, his life is going to powerfully push itself out. You're united like a branch is united to a tree trunk. And that life in the tree is down in the roots and sucking up nutrients and water. And it's going to push fruit out through those branches. The life of Jesus in you won't lead to a sinful, lawless life. It'll lead to a new life with new power, with new affections, with new capacities, with new desires. I know um, some, of, some of us were brought up with a, almost like an axiom, almost a saying, a, a truism. You know, we're saved by grace, but we're kept by works. We're saved by grace, yeah, we're forgiven by grace, but we're kept in the faith by our obedience. No, it's all grace. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Salvation is of the Lord and his grace from beginning to end. The life of Jesus in you is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. It never has anything to do with your obedience. God's feelings towards you have nothing to do with your obedience. But he's making you new. And as he comes in, your, your old identity is dead. And his Holy Spirit's living in you and it's pushing itself out in fruitful living. One of the early church fathers is a, a man known as Augustine. Augustine lived a, a life of debauchery. He was a, a self-proclaimed sex addict, traveled around, had women in every city, and powerfully came to Christ and was changed. And after his conversion to Jesus, after being born again by the Spirit of God, Augustine was in a city and, and, and met a woman with whom he had had a relationship on the street. And she is making advances towards him, and he's not, he's not responding. And uh, they're walking away from each other, and she, she turns back and says, Augustine, it's I. And Augustine turns and says, yes, but it's not I. The former me is dead. The former me is dead. I'm now alive. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now there's a spectrum here. Some of us uh, are living a life where we're experiencing, or we're in a season of life where we're experiencing much fruitfulness. Where God is doing incredible work through us, and he's changing us, and we're becoming more loving, we're becoming more gentle, we're becoming more patient, becoming more kind. Others, not as fruitful. Maybe we're really dealing with anger or gossip or greed or lust. You might say, well, what's the difference? What's the difference? Some are struggling. Some, you know, our lives look very, not at all different from those who don't believe in Jesus. Struggling with, maybe you're struggling with anger your temper. Maybe it's with porn. Maybe it's with gossip. Maybe your marriage is, is struggling. Maybe your relationship with your children is struggling. And you say, you know, if Jesus lives in me, if Jesus' life is in me, it feels really dormant right now. How do I experience this life that deep down I know I want? I want the goodness and character of God to come out through my life. I want to be accepted with God. 
the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who loved me, and gave himself for me. The life of Jesus will come out through you. The fruit of Jesus will come out through you by his life as we daily delight in his love. And we respond to him with trust. It doesn't say I live by faith in the one who commands me. I live by faith in the one who loved me. We delight in his personal love. He loved me. He gave himself for me. We can own that personally. It's for me. It's for you. He gave himself for you. He loves you. The life of Christ will be expressed through you in fruitful living as you will daily rest and trust in his love for you. You'll draw on the life of Jesus in us by delighting in the love of Jesus for you. Draw on the life of Jesus in you by drawing on the love of Jesus for you. It sounds so simple. You say, well, there must be more. It's, it's not more than that. It's a daily in prayer, in worship. Now, don't turn this into law. We love to turn these things into law and say, well, here's the rules. Better read my Bible today. Better spend 10 minutes in prayer. Do my devos. Right? We turn it into law. We turn it into checklist. And say, well, God must be pretty happy with me now. Now, look at I read my whole Bible last year. He must, he must think I'm, I'm something special. Don't turn it into law. It's about delight. It's all about delighting in the love of God for you. To see the depths of his affections for you. To see the depths of his grace for you. It's as you, as you daily rest in the one who loved you and gave himself for you that your resistance will melt away, that your suspicions of him will melt away. How do we do this? It's through the means that he's given us. It's through corporate worship. Don't skip this time. Make it a priority to come weekly and, and be reminded of the grace and the love of God. Come, it's, it's through his people. Speak the gospel to one another. Remind each other. Rehearse it together. It's through prayer. It's through his word. It's coming. I need to hear your word again today, Father. I need to be reminded of your affection for me. I need to know again that you love me, that you're for me, that you're not against me. You know, Jesus, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. That's the words of Jesus. And we love to turn that into law. We love to turn and say, Jesus says, well, if you love me, you'll obey me. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to prove my love for you, Jesus. I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to obey you today. It's turning it law again. It's turning it backwards. Jesus says, if you love me, if you'll experience my love and you'll respond with love, then the natural response will just be obedience. Don't turn it into law. Don't turn it into religion. Don't turn it into earning. Be melted by my love and you'll respond with love. And so what is it that you're struggling with? The answer is the love of God for you. Maybe you struggle with gossip. And, and, you, and, and what's at the heart of that? Go deep with Jesus into what's at the heart of that. What, what righteousness are you trying to build your life on? By gossiping. 
Are you trying to prove that you're, you're, you're better, that you're someone, you're something? Because I'm not as bad as them. Look at what they've done. And so you feel better about yourself by putting them down? What's the answer? The answer is the love of God for you. That in Jesus, you're an adopted son or daughter of God. And you have a word of, of, of approval spoken over you. You are my son. You're my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. And so I don't need, I don't need to make myself feel better. But I, have the, I have the approval of others. I don't need to make myself look better in the eyes of others. I have the approval of the one who matters most. So Father, may that be true of me today. It's the love of God for you that changes you. It's a daily delight in the love of God that will change you. The Christian life is not a life of struggling to follow rules and laws and lists to win his love. It's a relationship of following a Savior who wins us with his love. Christian life is not a life of struggling to follow laws and lists to win his love. It's a relationship of following a Savior who wins you with his love. Father in heaven, would you convince us of this? Would you change us by your love? May we be a people of love who delight daily in your great love.